Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. While many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized. Until today. I'm Alyssa Fixie, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. Time travel, dystopian visions of enduring fascism, and grasping for a world without the constraint of gender roles— Meanwhile, through it all, an alter ego, the mystery of which would remain unsolved for 50 years. In 1937, as the shroud of fascism darkened the skies of Europe and the world moved closer towards the inevitability of war, a novel was published. The book, Swastika Night, imagined a chilling version of the future, one where the Nazi party would succeed in conquering the world and rule as Hitler envisioned for a thousand years. It serves as one of the earliest examples of dystopian fiction, predating some of the most famous works like 1984 or Fahrenheit 451 by well over a decade. But while the authors of those two novels are taught in English classes in high schools across the United States, the identity of Swastika Knight's author wasn't known, even to her biggest fans, until long after her death. A true pioneer in her field, we once knew her under the pseudonym of Murray Constantine, but today we remember her as who she actually was, Catherine Burdekin. In 1896, Burdekin was born Catherine Cade in Sponden, Derbyshire, in the East Midlands of the UK. She was the youngest of four children, two boys, two girls. Catherine's sister, Rowena Cade, created the Minac Theatre, a famous open-air theatre space in Cornwall. Their ancestor was Joseph Wright of Derby, a painter known for landscape and portrait work during the early days of the Industrial Revolution. Catherine's childhood was one of some privilege, allowing for a governess in the home for her education and at Cheltenham Ladies College. She was intelligent and loved to read, but despite the creativity and ingenuity that seemed to run in the family, her parents forbid her to study at Oxford as her brothers had before her. While this was likely not a time when gender was an issue in her life, it's perhaps the most significant pivot point. Even coming from a position of wealth and privilege, here was a line she was told she could not cross. This dichotomy between gender identity and her respective places in society would become a significant recurring theme in her future writing. Her academic future seemingly at an end, Catherine instead married Beaufort Burdigan, an Australian classmate of her older brothers who had competed as a rower in the 1912 Summer Olympics. Beaufort served in the Royal Field Artillery during World War I, while Catherine served as a nurse in Cheltenham. The two had two children, and in 1920, the family moved back to Australia where Beaufort worked as a barrister and Catherine began writing. 
She published her first novel, a realist work titled Anna Cahoon, in 1922. And later that same year, her marriage to Beaufort fell apart, after which Catherine moved to Cornwall to live with her sister. She published another realist novel, The Reasonable Hope, in 1924. In 1926, she began a romantic relationship with a woman unnamed by history at her own request. The two would remain together for the rest of Catherine's life. Together, they raised Catherine's children and a third child, her partners. Catherine continued to write over the next several years, and her writing began to take on a fantasy science fiction tone. Her first genre novel, The Burning Ring, featured time travel via the magic titular ring. Another novel of hers of this period, The Rebel Passion, was the story of a woman's soul taking over the body of a medieval monk who, through visions of the future, allowed Burdekin to reflect on the past through the lens of the present, allowing for a modern interpretation of the events from the monk's era. It would also be the last novel that Catherine Burdekin would publish under her own name. In the mid-1930s, Catherine Burdekin began to publish under the invented name of Murray Constantine. Murray had been a family name, and Constantine was the name of the village in Cornwall. It is not fully known why Catherine Burdekin chose to switch to a pseudonym after having already published several novels under her own name. There is some theorizing that she did so in order to avoid the extra scrutiny and occasional scandal that befell female writers of her time, but interviews with her family decades later suggest that there may have been another reason. Catherine wrote with intensity. She finished her books quickly and with little regard for revision as she did so. Her prolific energy was fueled by her passion for the defining political struggle of her time, the coming battle against fascism looming in the days before World War II. She had been a pacifist in her youth, but as Hitler's Germany became more and more of a present threat, she became fiercely aware that it was a threat that would have to be fought. As such, her work took on a distinctly more anti-fascist tone in an era where the repercussions for such material could be dangerous to her and especially her family. The necessity of Murray Constantine was likely a mix of both of these factors. Either way, the freedom of writing under the new name allowed Catherine to dive into some of her most substantial and recognized work. The first significant work that Catherine Burdekin published under her new nom de plume was Proud Man. This novel told the story of an androgynous alien from the future who visits England in the 1930s. Within the novel, the author explores how such a being would perceive her contemporary nation in its history, and the way in which society develops children into women and men. Interestingly, one of the point-of-view characters in the book is a female novelist, serving as perhaps a surrogate for Catherine herself, giving her a place in the narrative end when her own name wasn't placed on it. Her most recognized novel, Swastika Night, followed in 1937. It told the story of a future in which the Axis powers won World War II, a war that had not even begun yet, but its inevitability and the subjugation that the Nazis would implement in the form of the Holocaust were assumptions that Burdekin could easily make. In her story, not unlike Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, the Nazis and the Japanese had divided up their conquered Earth with a Nazi civilization that reveres Hitler as a god. They had become so obsessed with their own toxic version of masculinity that women had been fully subjugated into living as caged livestock. It's easy to see this as simply a scathing criticism of fascist ideology, but Burdekin, writing under the safety of her Constantine identity, presents it as the ultimate destination of the inherent misogyny that exists in humanity since our prehistoric tribalism days. 
Another Burdekin novel, The End of This Day's Business, one she actually wrote prior to Swastika Night but wasn't published until decades after her death, presented almost the opposite future, a seemingly utopian society in which women have complete dominance over men. It could be easy to view this as the utopian counterpoint to Swastika Night's dystopia, but Burdekin's point of view was one of subjugation still being subjugation even if it seemed nicer and happier. A plot in the book involves a mother and son being put to death as a result of the mother attempting to educate the boy, a plot point that almost certainly was drawn from Burdekin's own experience being forbidden to study at Oxford. In much of her work, Burdekin explored the roles that gender forces people to play in society. One theme she would return to throughout her writing was the alleged superiority of men according to society, contrasted with the fragility in which manhood is presented. In words that feel as apt today as they did then, Burdekin wrote in Proud Man, Fear of effeminacy and the feeling among men that boys are naturally effeminate and must be most carefully trained to be manly would seem to show that at the bottom of their minds dwells a great fear of the suppressed power of the female sex. Following the publication of Swastika Night, Burdekin slipped into a depression. This wasn't uncommon for her during the periods after finishing a written work. She published one more book as Murray Constantine, a historical novel about Marie Antoinette that she co-authored with her friend Margaret L. Goldsmith, who had originally given her research material on Antoinette in an attempt to aid her out of her depression. She stopped writing during World War II, where she worked in a shoe factory, possibly to aid in the war effort, until she was forced to stop for health reasons. When she did finally return to writing, she was changed from the events of the war, no longer wanting to draw her attention towards political struggles. She instead began to focus on religious themes and mysticism. She wrote consistently until suffering a brain aneurysm in 1955 that almost resulted in her death. She would eventually pass away in 1963, leaving all of her post-war work unpublished. The truth behind Murray Constantine's identity was not revealed during Burdekin's lifetime, and in fact, it may have remained a secret were it not for the work of a single persistent academic, Daphne Pattaya. Patai read The Rebel Passion in 1980, over 50 years after it was published. By sheer coincidence, she also read a copy of Swastika Knight, credited to Constantine. Literary circles at the time suspected that Constantine was an alias for a female writer, but it would take Patai an additional five years and a lot of investigating before she would finally get confirmation from the publishing company that, indeed, Catherine Burdekin and Murray Constantine were one and the same. Patai then tracked down Burdekin's surviving family, including her partner, who, if Patai promised to respect her desire for anonymity, spoke in correspondence with her, sharing memories about the author. She even provided Patai with a trunk full of unpublished writings, including the manuscript for the end of this day's business, which was finally published in 1989. Many of Burdekin's classic works were republished starting in the mid-1980s and under her real name. Today, we can remember Catherine Burdekin not only as a pioneer of women's science fiction and speculative fiction writing, but as a pioneer of the genre itself. And it's tough to think that, had it not been for Daphne Pattaya obtaining the information about her identity while her family was still alive, all that we know about Burdekin might have been lost forever. There were certainly reasons why female authors often had to change their names to get published or to protect their loved ones from the things they were writing. Last year on this show, we discussed Gertrude Barrows Bennett, who preceded Burdekin by also pioneering a genre that would later earn lavish praise for the male writers like H.P. Lovecraft, who followed behind her. While these pseudonyms were often a necessity for these women to get published in the first place, it's hard not to imagine they also ultimately contributed to their erasure from the conversation about genres they helped define. 
While writing itself is an often isolated profession, famous writers, especially within the genre space, often develop cults of personality that grow larger than the words they put out on the page. We need only think of the tourists who flock to Ernest Hemingway's house or visit Stephen King's small town in Maine or lay flowers at Jack Kerouac's grave to know that type of connection readers can have with their most celebrated writers. In the case of Catherine Burdigan, perhaps this is truly what she wanted, to be able to put her writing out in the world and be unweighted by the burdens that her womanhood might impose on it. Perhaps she simply made the decision to trade fame for the relative peacefulness of her life with her partner and their children. All of that is possible. But it's hard not to imagine how much more of an impact her works may have had on the world today, how much more space they might take up in our conversations about literature, if only we could have known their author too. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Riley Silverman and read by Alyssa Fixie. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at sci-fi fangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sci-fi fangirls.